Welcome to the dough, where Cash is queen and we hardly know her, but we're still here figuring her out together. Because y'all, season two is here, okay? Hosted every week by me, X Maya. Remember, I'm going to be talking to all types of people about their relationship to money. Reality stars, entrepreneurs, financial experts, and even some of my own friends. Basically, anyone who will get real with me about their dollars. How they make money, how they spend it, and how they save it. Because I'm trying to retire early, people. Season 2 of The Dough is out on March 21st, wherever you get your podcasts. Join us on Archetypes, a dynamic podcast hosted by Megan, the Duchess of Sussex, as she digs into the labels that try to hold women back. In each intimate and candid conversation, Megan is joined by guests like Serena Williams, Mariah Carey, Paris Hilton, Issa Rae, and Trevor Noah as they delve into the roots of countless common descriptors of women like diva, crazy, dumb blonde, and the B word, and redefine and reclaim each identity along the way. The complete season of Archetypes is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Lemonada. Hey, y'all. This is Julian. And I know that we've been gone for a couple of months, but we're back with a special episode of Our America because we couldn't not talk about what in the world is going on in Texas. It seems like Texas is the center of the domestic news universe these days, whether we're talking about abortion rights, COVID, voting rights, immigration, You know, Texas was its own country for like nine years, and Texans often have a big head about themselves and a lot of pride. I say that as a native Texan and someone who still lives in Texas and loves the state. Uh, But lately, we've been getting into the news for all the wrong reasons, and we wanted to have this special episode, and I'm joined by Sawyer Hackett. Uh, He's the executive director of People First Future. We know each other well. You've probably also seen him on Twitter his followers have been climbing. He's proud of that. I'll ask him about that. <laughs> but maybe the, the most important thing is that today is actually Sawyer's birthday. He turned 30 today. Happy birthday, Sawyer. Thank you. I feel like I'm over the hill at this so, point. So how are you feeling about officially becoming over the hill? <laughs> I have to say, I think the anticipation of 30 is going to be way worse than actually being 30 because <laughs> I don't feel any different physically. Uh, I don't feel any different mentally, but... Uh, the anticipation was definitely uh, pretty bad. You know that they're like I'm. I'm about to turn 47 in less than two weeks. You know that that there are people, you know, up, who are young at heart, but up in years, who are like laughing at you right now that you think you're old at 30, right? Yeah, they. You know, they used to say that you were the rising star in in politics and Democratic politics and Texas politics, <laughs> but you know, 30 years old, that I might have to take the mantle from you soon. <laughs> Well, you know, maybe we can cheer you up with some Texas talk today. We're going to talk about so many of the things going on in Texas, uh, this SB8 legislation on abortion, SB1 on voting rights, uh, the COVID surge that Texas has seen. And we're also going to have a great conversation with someone who's an icon in Texas politics, Cecile Richards. I'm looking forward to that in just a bit. Uh, But first, let's get right into it. So on Tuesday, Governor Abbott signed SB1, which was voting rights legislation passed by the Texas legislature. Maybe we should say voter suppression legislation. This is the voter suppression legislation that Democrats left the state for uh, a couple of months back, tried to do what they could to block it. This legislation is like a collection of terribles when it comes to what it does to somebody's ability to access the voting booth. It bans drive-through voting. It bans 24-hour voting. It creates potential liability for somebody who just helps somebody to get out and vote, Uh, makes it less convenient to register to vote. It does exactly what voting legislation shouldn't do. Instead of making it easier and more convenient to vote, this thing makes it harder. And we know why, right? Republicans in Texas 
have dominated state politics for almost three decades, and they see the writing on the wall. In 2016, President Obama lost Texas by, or 2012, he lost it by 16 points. Hillary Clinton loses it by uh, nine points in 2016. Joe Biden lost it by five and a half points in 2020. In 2018, Democrats won two congressional seats, two state Senate seats, and 12 state House seats. The census that just came out a couple of weeks back showed that 95% of the state's growth was in people of color. So given all that, it's not surprising that the reaction of Texas Republicans was, hey, 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 what can we do to make sure that especially black and brown communities have a harder time voting? Right. And, as, you know, as folks know, uh, this bill is targeted uh, to undermine many of the provisions that that big cities and counties uh, like Harris County put in place in the 2020 election uh, to increase turnout, to expand access to the polls, to expand access to voting, uh, especially during the pandemic, things like drive through voting and 24 hour voting. Uh, but it, it has a lot more, you know, sinister things in it as well, whether it's, you know, undermining the ability for folks to get uh, absentee ballots uh, out in the mail uh, to, to potential voters. It gives partisan poll watchers this autonomy in polling places to to intimidate voters. And beyond that, it's, you know, it's a weaponization of Trump's big lie. It's this blatant attempt to to suppress the vote of, of, of Democratic voters, uh, voters of color, voters with disabilities, student voters. Um, and as we know, it's all based on a myth. It's based on this myth that that there's widespread voter fraud in Texas. Um, and, you know, folks, folks probably have seen some of this, but you know, the Texas attorney general did his own investigation to find voter fraud. He spent 22,000 staff hours. He spent millions of taxpayer dollars looking for it. There's been zero convictions. There's been zero convictions of intentional targeted voter fraud. Um, you know, Dan Patrick, the lieutenant governor, offered a million dollar uh, reward for anybody who could find potential fraud. Zero payments have been made. Uh, so it's all just based on a lie. And we're seeing it across, you know, this, this lie being weaponized in states across the country. Well, not only that, it seems like every just about every time you hear of actual voter fraud happening, it's folks it's voting on the Republican <laughs> side. Yeah, people trying to go out and vote for Trump that live in one state, voting in another state, you know, or something crazy like that. I mean, it's almost like it's total projection right. on the part of these folks. Yeah, I think I saw that that uh, that candidate in Pens for the Pennsylvania Senate race, Fetterman. He uh, he tried to take Dan Patrick up on that million dollar reward, but pointing out that there was a Republican in Pennsylvania who uh, who had you know committed voter fraud, and you know Dan Patrick obviously didn't pay up, but. Uh, it's just it's just these blatant, sinister lies that they're using to sort of weaponize our election system. And beyond that, they're they're using it essentially as a backstop for allowing, you know, SB eight, you know, this uh, this abortion ban bill, all of these other horrible bills, permitless open carry. They're trying to make it so that they can't be held accountable for all of the terrible legislating that they're doing in the state house uh, and from the governor's mansion. Yeah, I mean, you see what, and they surely see, these Republicans that, that legislated SB1, they see what happened in Arizona, the the election of uh, Kirsten Sinema and Mark Kelly. They see what happened in Georgia in the 2020 election, the election of uh, Warnock and Ossoff. Uh, and then you look at Texas's demographics and you think, wow, Texas is probably next. Right. And people have been talking about Texas turning blue for a long time, right? I mean, it seems like you, there are a whole bunch of journalists in New York and Washington that will roll their eyes now every cycle when they read another story about Texas turning blue. But one of the things that hasn't been pointed out, but I think is true, it's that legislation like this is not only hurting the ability of Democrats to vote, it's going to hurt the ability of all Texans to vote. It's going to make it less convenient, for instance, for people with disabilities. It's going to make it less convenient a lot of times for seniors because there may be less people who are uh, willing to help take them out to vote or help them request an absentee ballot. Uh, and so this is going to hurt everybody, not just one political, you know, partisan or another. Yeah. And, you know, some of those, some of those tactics, um, some of those uh, tools that I think counties like Harris County employed in the 2020 cycle to expand access really did benefit those communities, whether it's, uh, you know, expanding vote by mail and 24 hour voting, 
um, you know, that gave folks with disabilities the ability to to cast a ballot by mail instead of having to to get to a polling place. Um, you know, many of the essential workers, the the nurses on the front lines of the COVID nineteen pandemic, were able to cast a ballot. Uh, you know, after their shift uh, in the middle of the night because they had access. You remember to we visited uh, right. we visited one of those sites during the twenty twenty right. uh, uh, early voting period uh, in the Texas Medical Center complex. And I think we did run into a couple different uh, you know healthcare professionals who had just come off of a shift and decided to cast their ballot it was like on at twelve thirty at night or right. something. Yeah, and you know these were these were steps that were taken, obviously, you know, the, with the pandemic in mind. But they did sort of expand access to the polls for a lot of folks who do face, you know, challenges in voting. Those abilities to to cast a ballot are now uh, are now targeted under this bill. Um, but I think a lot of folks are asking now, sort of, what are the next steps? Obviously, that you know, the Department of Justice is going to keep keeping an eye on on this legislation uh, may eventually challenge it. I think they're challenging the Georgia bill. Um, right now and taking particular look at the absentee ballot situation in which organizations can send ballots or send applications for absentee ballots to individuals um, that target uh, that Georgia is targeting uh, Texas is also targeting so you know I think we would hope that the Department of Justice would also look at the Texas bill um, but you know I think there was another lawsuit on this bill from LULAC from Voto Latino um, and Texas AFT, there's lawsuits out of San Antonio, a couple out of Austin. I think there is now five lawsuits challenging this bill um, based on the fact that it that it disproportionately discriminates against people of color, with disproportionately discriminates against people with disabilities, um, and targets very lawful steps that counties have taken to expand access to the polls. Yeah, I mean, there's the Department of Justice. Obviously, the Biden administration is going to be uh, active and aggressive in... Uh, trying to combat these voter suppression bills, whether they're in Texas or the other states that you mentioned. And ultimately, that's going to be decided in the courts. Now, whether we should have much confidence in the courts, the federal courts, particularly the Supreme Court these days, uh, you know, that doesn't give people a lot of confidence. There's also the question of Congress. Right. And uh, Texas Democrats broke quorum uh, at the end of May in the general session uh, they broke quorum uh, as part of a special session, went up to D.C. to implore Senate Democrats to pass the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. And it needs to get done because really that's the, the best way, the most surefire way that you're going to be able to stop this voter suppression uh, scheme that Republicans have devised in its tracks. Right. And, you know, the, the genesis of all of this, uh, as folks probably know, is that, you know, in, in 2013, that the Supreme Court essentially ruled that uh, states that had a history of discriminating against folks' uh, access uh, to voting uh, had to pass a preclearance with the Department of Justice to where any new laws were put under, you know, heavy scrutiny by the department uh, to make sure that they weren't discriminating against folks. And I know that you testified um, in front of the, I believe it was the House Judiciary Committee not too long ago, sort of discussing how that took place. But it really does, you know, just emphasize how important it is to to get a new voting rights, uh, get voting rights legislation passed, including the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Um, but right now, the filibuster is standing in the way. Um, so <laughs> I guess, you know, what can be done right now to, to make sure that we get a vote on these bills. And we got to set aside that filibuster. Mm-hmm. We got to set aside that filibuster. And for a moment there, it looked like they might figure out a way to come up with a compromise. I mean, there are other ways to compromise, right? President Biden has said that he supports going to a talking filibuster. The, basically, that's the old traditional filibuster where if you're going to filibuster a piece of legislation, you actually can you have to get up there and talk and you can only filibuster for as long as you can stay up there. That's, you know, the, the movie version of the filibuster today. All you got to do if you're a Senator is just send an email basically saying, I filibuster this legislation. You don't have to do anything else and it holds it all up. But right now, as we talk, you know, there's, there's been no real movement on this. Right. And, and, you know, folks have expressed some, uh, some anger uh, at, at the Biden administration, at Congress for not acting on this. You know, we've spent six months or more uh, debating and meeting and talking about the infrastructure bill and the reconciliation bill, which are, which are critically important, of course. 
But at the same time, you see these states uh, like Texas, like Georgia, like Arizona, uh, using the opportunity without Congress blocking them to pass these these ridiculous uh, voter suppression bills. Um, and I think that there's been some some justified anger at the administration for expressing the sentiment that that we can sort of out organize voter suppression, uh, that we can out organize these bills. Um, you know, especially when we've seen Texas move closer and closer to being, uh, you know, a competitive, you know, blue state that that we're essentially just taking two steps forward and then one giant step back. Um, it's frustrating. Sure. Well, I mean, we, you know, kudos to the Biden administration, to the president for getting that infrastructure package passed. Of course, that reconciliation uh, budget is, you know, even more important. Uh, but let's also be frank. I mean, passing voting rights legislation is not like passing an infrastructure package. Infrastructure uh, always had a bipartisan appeal to it. And so did voting rights you know, as recently as 2006, but much less so now, because Republicans know that they're able in state after state, especially states like Texas and Georgia, that are about to flip on them or already have, they know what they're doing, they can get away with it in these states, and then just do nothing about it at the federal, they can protect their own turf and their own majority, or, you know, potential majority in the United States Senate. How does that compare to saying yes to delivering money to your state or your district uh, in an infrastructure bill, something that you can easily sell. They can't sell this to their base because their base has been worked up with this big lie that Donald Trump told and sold uh, and continues to pound on Fox News and OAN and Newsmax or whatever uh, channels he has. So it's just not the same thing. You know, it's, I think it's naive to believe that they're going to be able to get those 10 Republican senators to go along with them on, on any kind of meaningful voting rights legislation. Right. And if you needed more, if you needed more evidence for, for how far, how extreme the Republican Party has, has moved on this issue and more, uh, you know, the last time that the Voting Rights Act was uh, reauthorized and expanded uh, was 2006 in a Republican Congress with a Republican president in George Bush. Uh, and it was reauthorized unanimously, including with support from, you know, Texas Senator John Cornyn. So clearly this is an issue that they have decided, uh, you know, they don't think that they're going to pay a political price for. And so they can sort of work the rules, fix the system uh, to benefit themselves, um, you know, and, and really just sort of abandoning any sort of principle of standing up for voting rights, um, you know, at, at the national level. The immediate hope outside of uh, congressional action, which doesn't look like it's going to happen anytime soon, is, as you mentioned, the courts. And, you know, there's a lot of legal precedent around the original Voting Rights Act. Uh, and, of course, there's equal protection and due process under the Constitution. And so we're going to have to see how that plays out. Uh, my hope is, of course, that SB1 is going to get tied up in court and ultimately overturned. And, you know, we'll have to see how that goes down. I wish that I could say that uh, the governor signing voter suppression legislation was the only bad news out of Texas, but we can't say that because these days Texas is the face of the Delta variant COVID surge along with states like Florida. Uh, in fact, the uh, Houston Chronicle reported that uh, Texas over the weekend saw a record number of children hospitalized with COVID-19. We've also seen, uh, by one count, more than 50,000 cases of COVID-19 diagnosed in students across the state. You've had several school districts actually open up and then shut down within a couple of weeks because they saw a Delta variant surge. All of this against the backdrop of a governor that has taken this see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil approach uh, to the coronavirus will not allow schools to require wearing masks, will not empower uh, private businesses or others to uh, require vaccinations. Uh, basically, he's getting in the way of progress. And so it's not surprising that you've seen COVID surge in Texas. Right. And, you know, Greg Abbott has, has tried, uh, at least on a couple occasions in the last couple of weeks, to sort of 
claim that that you know Texas is getting better, the situation is getting better, that COVID is you know uh, the situation with COVID is getting better, that our positivity rate is down and hospitalizations are down. I mean, let's be clear. Yesterday in Central Texas, there was zero ICU beds available. That's the first time in the entire pandemic that the eleven county area surrounding Austin had had zero ICU beds. I mean, that is a crisis and. And disproportionately, I mean, maybe not disproportionately, but children are occupying those beds more and more, uh, which is extremely frightening. Um, you know, his executive order has largely been dismissed or ignored by some of the big metropolitan areas in Texas, uh, whether local leaders and school districts are just ignoring it and then just, you know, requiring masks anyway, or they're challenging him in court. He has sort of had this weird system in which he's allowing or maybe not he's allowing, but local officials are stepping up, defying him, and he's not really able to do anything about it. And I think he he wants it that way. I mean, he wants he knows that these local leaders are doing his job for him, that they're the ones trying to keep Texas children safe. Uh, and he gets to play, you know, big bad wolf. Uh, you can't tell these communities what to do. You can't tell these children what to do. Um, but in the end, local leaders are the ones stepping up. Or well, I mean, failed. You, I mean, you hit the nail on the head right there with how Craven... Greg Abbott is. It's this wink wink approach. He huffs and puffs and, you know, puts these laws in place, executive orders in place that restrict the ability of responsible public officials, school officials, or local city councils or county commissions to do what they need to do to protect their constituents from COVID. Uh, he puts those in place so that he can, you know, dangle the red meat in front of his base because he's running for re-election and he has these two opponents in Alan West uh, and in Don Huffines that are seen as even more conservative than him. So he's trying to cover his flank, knowing, just knowing that school districts and city councils are going to challenge this and uh, ultimately basically put these rules in place anyway, which is what they've done. Mm -hmm. uh, and so he kind of gets the benefit of them acting responsibly, putting these public health measures in place, and at the same time gets to kind of look like a hero to his base. Like, hey, I tried to do everything I could because this is about freedom. It's about protecting you from this tyranny of people who want you to just wear masks and submit and whatever their logic is. This is a game that the guy has played for years. And this is one of the reasons that even conservatives don't really trust him. They don't like him because they think he's an opportunist. They think he's this finger-in-the-wind politician. And that's been on full display uh, during this COVID crisis. Yeah, and I think, you know, the, the Texas legislature recessed uh, the first special session, which was primarily about the voting rights bill. Um, but they recessed without passing legislation that would have codified his executive order banning mask requirements, uh, which, you know, I think has been a priority for some of the state Republican state legislators. Um, you know, there is a bill that would have done that, but lawmakers have largely ignored that bill, largely ignored his call for that bill to pass. Uh, and I think that has to come with a wink and a nod from the governor and from the lieutenant governor to say, oh, well, we don't we don't want this legislation to pass because then local leaders can actually step up to do my job for me. And we don't look like we're in crisis all the time. I mean, it's just it's just craven, cynical politicking from the governor. Um, and like you mentioned, I mean, he has a pattern of doing this on multiple issues. And uh, this time it's causing real damage. Uh, a lot of new coronavirus cases, hospitalizations deaths in the state, parents worried, worried about their children's health, parents sometimes withdrawing their kids from school because they don't, they fear for their safety. Uh, all of that, you know, I have a six-year-old son and a 12-year-old daughter. They started public school, I guess about a month ago. And within a few days, we got a letter at home that said that uh, two people uh, had tested positive for COVID those kinds of letters are going out in school district after school district and uh, parents everywhere in the state are so worried about their kids' health and the inability of, uh, of these school officials to fully protect their children. Now, the TEA has said that they're not enforcing this ban on uh, the requirement that people wear a mask. So there's, there's sort of this, you know, truce right now mm -hmm. that's been imposed um, and hopefully it stays that way, um, or hopefully the governor loses in court. There's so much to cover about 
Texas and the news. Um, we couldn't let the opportunity pass. Uh, we need to address SB8. Right. Uh, SB8 is the anti-abortion legislation that the Texas legislature just passed recently. People are talking about it because this basically overturns Roe versus Wade. Mm -hmm. uh, it says that no one can get an abortion once a fetal heartbeat is detected, which essentially is around six weeks. Many women don't even know that they're pregnant at six weeks. It's six weeks after a person starts their last menstrual cycle. So folks are saying basically you have banned abortion, right. which has been guaranteed as a right for the last 50 years. The Supreme Court recently made it worse by not standing up and putting a stay on this legislation, which means that it's taken effect in the state of Texas. Uh, because of that, very few abortions are being performed. Um, reproductive care, access to reproductive care in the state of Texas uh, has been harmed tremendously. And now states, conservative states throughout the country, they have this roadmap of the model type of legislation that they want to put in place, like Texas, that will at least not be overturned immediately by the Supreme Court. Right. And we're about to see a whole wave of them do just that. Right. And experts have looked have looked at this bill. Um, they've seen legislation like this before, and, and they've essentially estimated that 85% uh, of abortions would just not be able to exist anymore, um, you know, based on that six-week rule. Um, but even, you know, worse than that, this bill creates this bounty system where uh, individuals, any sort of, any citizen on the street can sue in civil court a, yeah, that's a woman the worst part who of gets it. an abortion, uh, or or anybody who assists in that, and you know some of the companies I think Lyft uh, is doing some some great work to fight back, and they're providing I think a legal fund for for their drivers, but it it would allow an individual to sue a Lyft driver who drives somebody to an abortion clinic. I mean, it's just absurd, and this is why the Supreme Court's decision is just it makes no sense. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, I know that you are, um, but they've essentially said you know, as long as you create this sort of civil litigation system where individuals can take on um, suing on this issue, that you can do whatever you want, that you can get away with skirting. Yeah, I mean, it's this outrageous yeah. private right of action uh, that they believe, it's basically an end run around the traditional way of enforcing a law, which of course is that the authorities uh, enforce the law, a DA or the attorney general of the state. And they believe that by going this private action approach, uh, that they're essentially going to be able to pass constitutional muster, you know, with this court, this, uh, Roberts court, uh, who knows what's going to happen, uh, but it doesn't look good so far. Well, and of course I think, you know, this is eventually going to reach the Supreme court in, you know, uh, in a real actual case instead of this weird shadow docket system where they rule on emergency orders and all of that. But as you mentioned, I mean, it is just creating this roadmap for states to sort of weaponize their their civil court system, overwhelming their civil court system with these private this private litigation. And I think you mentioned this on Twitter, but like, first, there's no exception in this bill for yeah, incest. No or rape. exception for rape or incest. And and there's a there's a section in the bill that essentially says that uh, an individual who rapes somebody is not allowed to take a woman to court. But you know nothing their stopping family their friend could or their yeah family or anybody from suing on behalf of the rapist, uh, suing the victim. So I mean, that's preventing outrageous, from getting an outrageous. I mean, these guys are taking us back to the dark ages here. You can feel in Texas for the first time in a very long time. People not just scratching their heads, but like shaking their heads with anger at the leadership of this state. Uh, I think partly because of COVID and this, Greg Abbott's approval numbers have plummeted. He has the lowest Nine approval points. rating that he's had uh, at least in five years. I think his approval rating was at 41. His disapproval was higher than it's ever been at 50%. And 52% of people in the same poll said that they thought Texas was heading in the wrong direction. So there may be some political price to pay for 
uh, passing SB8 and SB1. And, you know, we're going to have a really great conversation with someone who knows this issue of reproductive care and the right to an abortion uh, as well as anyone, if not better than anyone, and who also knows Texas. Right. Uh, we're going to have a great conversation with Cecile Richards when we come back. I'm looking forward to it. There. It's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. After season one aired, I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. And of course, my 90-year-old mom, Judy. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me Season 2 is out March 27th from Lemonada Media. People love to pretend that there are simple formulas for living your best life now. Eat this and you won't get sick. Manifest it and everything will work out. But there are some things you can choose and some things you can't. And it's okay that life isn't always getting better. I'm Kate Bowler, and on Everything Happens, I speak with kind, smart, funny people about life as it really is. Beautiful, terrible, and everything in between. Let's be human together. Everything Happens is available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, y'all. I am excited to welcome our next guest. You know, Sawyer and I have the pleasure of chatting today with someone who's an icon when it comes to Texas politics and whose family has such a rich history in the state. Uh, Cecile Richards served for 12 years as a head of Planned Parenthood, and today she's the co-chair of American Bridge 21st Century. She's also the co-founder of Supermajority. Uh, and she has a unique perspective on SB8 and everything that is happening in Texas. And we couldn't let the opportunity pass without reaching out to Cecile and chatting with her about what in the world is going on with Texas. And Cecile, thanks for joining us. Sure, Secretary. It's good to see you. And I'm really thrilled that you're doing this um, this podcast. And continuing to be such an important leader for us, not only in Texas, but around the country. So thanks. Thanks a lot for that. You know, I tell everybody that'll listen that the last great governor of Texas that we had was your mom, Ann Richards. And, uh, you know, I have a mother that also was very politically active. And I remember going to an event, I must have been in 1990, when your mom was campaigning for governor, uh, my mother dragged me to it. I was like 15 years old, uh, but somehow got up near the front of the line that your mom was walking, shaking hands. And she stopped, shook my hand, and she looked into my eyes and she said, uh, young man, I want you to promise me that you're going to do well in school and you're going to go on to college and, and do something. Uh, for your family and for the community. And uh, I've never forgotten that, how much your mom cared about the people of Texas and like her whole perspective about making the state better for everybody. And I think about that, her leadership, I think about your leadership all of those years. And then I think about where we're at now in Texas. A few days ago, you know, SB8 passed. And there are a lot of people who have been following this, but not everybody listening has followed it as closely as we have. Can you tell folks what's different about this law? How does it undermine 50 years worth of legal precedent uh, that is Roe v. Wade and, a, uh, and the right to an abortion? Sure. Although I, I can't help but just also comment on what you just said. One, of course, mom would be so proud of you 
and your brother uh, and your whole family. Um, and she really, because she, she really believed in public service. And I feel like that's actually a thread of what we're talking about here, which is, you know, the people elect you not to do what just your supporters wanted or what your p- political party is advancing, but you're to represent the people uh, of all the people. And she believed in that so strongly. And I feel like that's what we're seeing, unfortunately, right now in Texas is a group of elected officials who are putting their own politics ahead of the well-being of the people of our state. And essentially, that is what SB8 did. I mean, this has been, and, and for those of you who are just kind of tuning into this whole scene down in Texas, this is not something that happened overnight. This has been a really the platform of the Republican Party in Texas, not only Governor Abbott, not only the other statewide elected Republicans, but the Republican legislature. Uh, That's why this law is now in effect. Um, They have been trying for years to end access to any safe and legal abortion, and they succeeded. Uh, And of course, uh, with the support of a United States Supreme Court that is now so heavily imbalanced um, in in such a partisan fashion. So I guess to kind of cut to the chase, I'd say what SB8 did is for the first time since Roe versus Wade, the constitutional case that uh, legalized um, the ability of people to make their own decisions about pregnancy, for the first time in almost 50 years, a state has effectively outlawed safe and legal abortion. And so as we're sitting here today talking, there are people everywhere in the state of Texas who have lost that right. And uh, the the kind of fear and chaos uh, and cruelty um, of this, that this bill and, and this piece of legislation has created and is going to continue uh, to uh, impact on the people of Texas is, is horrifying. And as you and I know, what happens in Texas quickly spreads around the country and uh, that's what we can anticipate from the Republicans in other states as well. Yeah, just to, to think about what this legislation does, uh, says that a person cannot get an abortion after a fetal heartbeat is detected, which generally is about six weeks uh, into pregnant, really not even six weeks. It's not six even, weeks correct. after the beginning of the last menstrual cycle. A lot of people, most people don't even know. Women know, they don't even know at that point that they're pregnant. So you're basically cutting off the right to an abortion. Exactly. And I I think that, I mean, there's so many pieces of this um, uh, that if you, if you look at that, that's right. Let's just even say by some, some miracle, you figure out that you're pregnant, you know, you want to terminate that pregnancy, then you've got to find a provider. And of course, a big part of this legislation is aimed directly at creating fear and intimidation of doctors and clinicians and folks around the state. So it's going to be hard, even if you were somehow able to miraculously thread that needle. And I think the estimate is 85 to 90 percent of of, uh, folks who want to end a pregnancy would not be able to meet that deadline. Then you would actually have to find someone who is still um, has been able to continue to provide those medical services. Hey, Cecile, this is Sawyer. So as you mentioned, uh, you know, this fight over abortion is, is it's not the first time it's taken place in, in Texas, uh, and it's essentially become part of the platform of the Republican Party in, in the state. Um, but I think this may be the first time that they successfully sort of created a roadmap uh, for other states to follow. Um, as you mentioned, are we seeing the new battle lines for the fight for abortion care? And, and how do you think we should approach fighting back on this issue? Yeah, no, absolutely, Sawyer. I mean, this is, again, you know, and folks should, if they want to, you know, get into this further, read um, Justice Sotomayor's um, dissent. And I mean, this is essentially, and even and even Justice Roberts, basically, this is a, you know, a way that the state has tried to avoid enforcement of a law, throwing it out to uh, private citizens who, and particularly folks who have been on the extreme anti-abortion front for many, many years who can now, you know, um, inform on uh, people everywhere. So this is a whole new, um, whole new sort of theory that, again, unfortunately, by a narrow 5-4 decision, three of the justices, you know, on the Supreme Court put on there by Donald Trump in super partisan fashion, 
um, 5-4 decision letting this law stand. And of course, the implications, the legal implications are vast, not only for abortion, but for a whole host of other things. We're kind of got to create this sort of um, bounty hunting uh, form of law enforcement. Um, but I think that obviously the concern is not only that abortion is now virtually um a safe and legal abortion is impossible to get in Texas, the second largest state in the country. But there's a big case coming before the Supreme Court uh, uh, about the state of Mississippi that's coming up this fall. That will be decided next spring. So to me, it's it's like it just has drawn a sharp line uh, around the issue of whether or not we are now moving to a, a, a country where um, your rights, whether it's to access safe and legal abortion, whether it's the right to vote, um, is going to depend on what state you live in. And that's really frightening. Yeah, absolutely. And you already hear talk, and in some cases, as you mentioned, uh, real action by other states to imitate Texas. Correct. Uh, They've been given a blueprint for how you can essentially, uh, if not necessarily get the full stamp of approval, at least get the silence no pushback from the Supreme Court. And so all of these GOP governors and legislatures, especially the ones, these guys that want to run for president in 2024, you know that they're, they're just super ready, uh, salivating <laughs> at the mouth to pass this kind of legislation. But let's talk about the politics of this. For a long time, Republican politicians have played to their base with the issue of abortion. They have politicized it perhaps more than any other issue over the last 50 years. And I think even among some Democrats, uh, there was this assumption that it in some ways was a quote-unquote winning issue for them because their side was so passionate about it. But now you have a lot of people, especially a lot of women, who see the damage that they have done in Texas and soon probably in other states by effectively eliminating the ability of a woman to exercise her right to choose. What do you think that that's going to do on on the political end in terms of participation, mobilization, um, a pushback to this right-wing agenda? Well, you're already seeing it, uh, Julian. It's, you know, not only in Texas, but I'm sure... Uh, much like me, you're probably just being flooded by folks saying, okay, what can we do? How could this possibly happen? Uh, and so I, and of course, we're heading into really crucial midterm elections where one of the most, you know, we look at the last midterms in 2018, and that's when women, uh, and particularly suburban women, but not only, you know, women of color, women, working women, turned out in absolute droves um, to reverse what was happening in Washington, D.C. And then, of course, we saw record turnout in the last presidential election. There was concern among many, and I know at American Bridge, we've been talking to suburban women and really trying to listen to where they're they're at. A lot of them were just frankly so relieved that Donald Trump was no longer president that they were sort of like wanting to take a break from politics, if you will. And I, you know, I look, I think there's a risk that in the midterms, some folks just say, well, it doesn't really matter if I go vote. There has never been a clearer bell ringing than this this uh, situation in Texas for women and men everywhere to, you know, young people, you name it, to say, wow, if this can happen in Texas, this can happen anywhere in the country. And as you said, um, and uh, Sawyer mentioned, we're already seeing in Florida, in Ohio, uh, in other states, Republicans who are currying favor with the extreme part of their of their party uh, eager to do the same thing. And it's um, so I think it's what's really important that we do in these next, you know, several weeks, months ahead is explain to people, explain to the voters why this happened. This was not just something that fell out of the sky. This was the Republican Party's agenda. And now they did it. And now every Republican uh, that's in office needs to take a position and needs to be held accountable. And I believe in Texas, we need to be telling the real stories of what what is happening um, on the ground um, to pregnant people, to women. I, I, the stories I'm hearing are just horrifying, 
maddening, infuriating, and I think a call to action. Well, it's such a personal issue. Uh, it means so much. This this is a right that means so much to so many people out there. And you know, you dedicated you've dedicated a large part of your professional life to advocating on the issue of reproductive care, the right to an abortion. Um, more recently, you talked about the you know why this was a personal issue to you. Uh, maybe you could talk to us about that here. Sure. I mean, I've been very public that, you know, I made the decision to have an abortion uh, and it wasn't a, you know, I was not the survivor of of um, sexual assault or, you know, some other dramatic uh, story. Um, my life wasn't in danger. I was a mom with three kids uh, that found myself pregnant unexpectedly and had to make the best decision for me and for my family. Uh, and I did. And that's the story of millions of people in this country. And the thought that now, um, as a Texan, that anyone in the state has fewer rights than I did that many years ago is, is incredible. And the thought that the hubris of Greg Abbott or any one of these Republican legislators that would say they are in a better position that a pregnant person to make a decision about a pregnancy uh, is um, is really distressing and maddening. Again, I think it's energizing because we we can't we can't let this stand. And one other thing I think is really important: what Greg Abbott did and what the Republican legislature did is not supported by Texans. It's not supported by people in this country. You know, you poll after poll, and I listen. I worked for Planned Parenthood for years. Uh, people believe strongly that decisions about pregnancy are so personal. These are decisions that need to be made by the individual, not by politicians, not by government. And uh, so I, I, I do believe that they have now really drawn the line. And, you know, we're going to see, I, I think, not only energized turnout in elections, which we need to, but I also believe we're going to see Republicans uh, who fundamentally believe their party has lost its way, supposedly the party of small government, um, small in every way, as you and I know, except where when it comes to the most personal private decisions that folks can make um, uh, about their own health care, their own body, their own pregnancies. So Cecile, you mentioned um, Greg Abbott there. And, you know, as you know, Texas is sort of become the center of so many of the the crises that our country is facing right now, whether it's voting rights in this SB1 bill or, you know, climate change. We have these these huge storms coming into the state to the COVID-19 pandemic and, and the governor's poor handling of that. Um, so why is Texas so front and center right now? Um, and is this just a reaction to, you know, the fact that the state is changing so rapidly and becoming more competitive politically? You know, I wish I could understand what Greg Abbott is thinking, Governor Abbott. Uh, I honestly don't, but it feels like to me it is a race to the bottom uh, on pretty much every concern that Texans have, and really that he is playing political games, trying to fend off uh, challenges uh, in within the Republican Party so that he can continue to be governor. I feel like he has completely lost any ability or commitment to serving the greater good of the people of Texas. I was just looking at the numbers in Texas. I, I was just down there with my dad you know, and dealing with healthcare issues and realizing how impossible it is even uh, to get access to hospital care because of the COVID situation. Um, less than half of the population in Texas is vaccinated. Of course, we are the worst state in the country for healthcare coverage, and that is by choice by the Republicans in the legislature who've denied Medicaid expansion uh, for for Texans. Um, the numbers today, just looking at the New York Times website, we have the highest number of hospitalizations uh, in the country and the highest number of deaths, an average of 234 a day in Texas, and zero action by the governor. And of course, as we were talking about earlier, um, the restrictions that were just signed into law, literally putting in some of the harshest restrictions for people to vote because I think Greg Abbott knows, and a lot of these politicians know, if they let everybody vote, they're not going to have a job anymore. And it's incredible to me that they would turn their back on 
you know, democracy when we had some of the best voter participation ever in the last election. And instead of learning from that and applauding that, they're now taking away the very ability, particularly of working people in the state of Texas, to cast a ballot and cast it safely. And Cecilia, you're from Waco. And yep. uh, I'm from San Antonio. Proud, Proud yep. Texans, both of us. And we know that part of the Texas spirit has always been this can-do attitude, this can-do spirit. Yep. Right now, a lot of people are wondering what in the world can they do um, to register their disagreement, their passion on this issue, to push back. Uh, what's your advice to them? Well, I think, number one, in addition to registering your discontent, which is important, we also, of course, have to register everybody that we know to vote. And I know that the state is making that harder and harder, but I really want to applaud all the efforts uh, that are being um, made right now to make sure that people are, are registered. Look, uh, I remember when I used to work for um, Speaker Pelosi, and the most important thing I learned is how few people actually contact their member of Congress or their representative or their senator about an issue they care about. And so one of the fundamental things that can happen right now is anyone who lives in a district, um, uh, particularly one represented by a, um, by a Republican member who voted for these laws, you need to let them know that you don't support it. And you can write letters to your local paper. You can, you know, uh, go online and register your concern. It's just really important. I, I I think in some ways, you know, part of what I think Greg Abbott has tried to do is wear people down. And of course, we saw that in the last time when we had to, you know, Wendy Davis filibustered the bad bills and we had to keep fighting and again, eventually won in a, in a very different Supreme Court. But I think they counted us out. And what is really important, um, you have to, you absolutely have to have your voice out there um, in the sphere. Because what is the most dangerous, I think, Leon, is having people think, I must be the only one. Yeah. And that is really dispiriting. And I know for a lot of folks, when you talk about Waco and you know talk about other rural parts of, uh, of the state, sometimes folks feel like, oh my gosh, I guess I'm, you know, maybe it's me. Um, so there's nothing more important than actually speaking your truth um, because other folks will hear it. Yeah, I mean, people should know they're not alone. That's right. There are a lot of people, a lot of other Texans, a lot of people throughout the country that feel the same way. Correct. Yeah, so Cecile, you mentioned, um, you know, where folks can sort of channel their their anger politically and what we need to be doing over the next few years to, to organize and, and fight back and fight back in the courts. Um, we put on Twitter before uh, this conversation, uh, just generally, if anybody had any questions for you, and, and by and far, the most uh, common question was, what can we be doing in the meantime, uh, in the short term? Where can we be donating? How can we be channeling uh, our social media to, to support organizations that are fighting back, that are providing these services where the government uh, is not, sure. not supportive of? Well, I mean, I, th I think you can, uh, there are, I don't know the site exactly, but there's um, sort of a, a joining of all the groups that are working in Texas to ensure that abortion funds that provide essential um, support for people that need to travel out of state, which is basically everybody now, uh, and need other kinds of assistance that they have that those financial resources. Of course, organizations like Planned Parenthood of Greater Texas or the other Planned Parenthoods in the state, you know, Whole Women's Health, these are organizations that are um, not only providing services to people in the state of Texas, but also litigating these issues uh, so I, I'm a big believer in Give Locally. Uh, these are folks who are on the ground, dedicated staff, dedicated um, health care providers. And though, it's not enough. This is a political battle. The reason these laws have now taken effect is because the Republican Party thinks they can roll over all of us. And we can't let them. And so I want to encourage people not to give up hope, certainly contribute um, do what you can to support the organizations. But for goodness sake, we've got to get out there and register voters. We've got to show up in every election, not just the, not just the big flashy ones. Um, these midterm elections are going to be critical and they're going to be critical in the state of Texas. And again, so I'm really grateful to everything that you all are doing to have people keep the faith. Um, this, this battle is going to be long, but it, we are far from done. Uh, and I feel like it's a wake up call, not only in Texas, but across the country. 
Well, Cecile, those are great marching orders. We need to organize. We need to register folks to vote. We need to get out and make sure that we all vote and get everybody that we can to go vote uh, in the midterms in 2022 and in every race, every election that's out there at the local level, the state level, and the federal level for those who care about this issue and all of the other ones that Texas is making bad news on these days. Uh, I want to thank you for your leadership and always being a consistent, strong, clear voice for doing what's right on this issue and so many others. Thank you for joining us today. Well, you too, my friend. Thank you very much. And um, we'll keep at it. Okay? Will do. Thanks, Cecile. All right. Thanks. Can't get enough of your favorite Lemonada Media podcasts? By subscribing to Lemonada Premium today, you'll gain access to fun and inspiring bonus content from all of our podcasts across the Lemonada Media network. As a subscriber, you can listen to never-before-heard interview excerpts between Julia Louis-Dreyfus and her A-plus guests on Wiser Than Me, laugh along with Elise Myers as she and her guests play a rapid-fire questions game on Funny Cause It's True, and continue to uncover new ways to make life suck less through our exclusive subscriber audio. Check out a free trial of Lemonada Premium today in the Apple Podcast app by clicking on our podcast logo and then the subscribe button. Hi, I'm June Diane Raphael. And I'm Jessica St. Clair. And we would like to invite you on a hilarious and heartfelt journey each week on The Deep Dive. From navigating the chaos of motherhood and family to exploring the depths of grief and loss, we are just two best friends who process life together and with you guys. Discover our secrets to finding joy amidst the madness and get ready for unfiltered conversations about life, love, and everything in between. And nails. We talk a lot about nails. Now, community is everything to us at The Deep Dive. We believe in the power of connection and the strength that comes from supporting one another, and we would love to have you with us. So be sure to join us every Wednesday on The Deep Dive from Lemonada Media, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Well, that was a great conversation. Now, look, I'm in Texas, uh, but Sawyer's actually in D.C. Happy birthday from Texas, Sawyer. 30 years old. Uh, you can say that uh, this day, maybe you started a new career with right. podcasting. Right. How are you going to celebrate your birthday, by the way? Right. And started, started a new career in podcasting and, you know, Texas passes voter suppression legislation on my birthday. It's just a nice mix of... Uh, Good and bad, but no, I'm uh, you know, I'm I'm keeping it low key. I'm not somebody who typically celebrates their birthday. Um, I, I I like to cook, as some folks know, but uh, you know, I grew up in a family that that cooks. My dad is a chef, and uh, so I ordered a hundred and fifty dollar Japanese wagyu beef steak that I had shipped what? out. Uh, I've been curing egg yolks. Wait, uh, wait, who are you gonna have this dinner with? I think I might just have it by myself. A nice glass of wine, put on that out, you know, cook this steak. It's going to be incredible. But, um, you know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll save a little doggy bag for you and I'll send it over to Texas yeah. for you. Some folks said that y'all celebrated your birthday, kind of the big group thing the other day. Yeah, yeah. We actually, me and my friends, we all have sort of similar birthdays and we all took it, took a trip to Vegas, uh, which it was nice to, um, you know, Vegas is one of my favorite cities and it was actually good to, to get out and about as my first trip since the start of the pandemic. And, um, you know, I ended up losing a ton of money and all my friends won, which was disappointing, but it was a good way to, good way to celebrate. Well, happy birthday and, uh, and many, many more. Thanks. I appreciate that. Um, and yeah, uh, you know, I thought it was a great conversation with Cecile, but, you know, we're going to have a lot more of these conversations, um, it, you know, as we start the second season of the podcast um, and, you know, more information to come on that. But in the meantime, uh, I would just encourage folks to go ahead and follow us. Um, you know, you can follow Secretary Castro at, at Julian, J-U-L-I-A-N-C-A-S-T-R-O. You can follow me at, at Sawyer Hackett, S-A-W-Y-E-R-H-A-C-K-E-T-T. And then go ahead and follow Lemonada Media, um, who produces our podcast uh, at L-E-M-O-N-A-D-A-M-E-D-I-A. 
Um, and like I said, more to come. Thanks for listening. Cecile gave us some marching orders. Organize, register, vote. Let's do it. Lemonada. Feeling decision fatigue about what to make for dinner? We get it. I'm Jane Black. And I'm Liz Dunn. We're veteran food journalists, and as parents ourselves, we know how hard it can be to feed your family. That's why we created Pressure Cooker, a podcast that offers practical strategies for navigating the marketing madness and cultural expectations around mealtime. Each week, we'll check in with the experts. From social media diet trends to baby-led weaning and AI meal planning, we have all your food-related questions covered. Listen to Pressure Cooker wherever you get your podcasts. Join us on Archetypes, a dynamic podcast hosted by Megan, the Duchess of Sussex, as she digs into the labels that try to hold women back. In each intimate and candid conversation, Megan is joined by guests like Serena Williams, Mariah Carey, Paris Hilton, Issa Rae, and Trevor Noah, as they delve into the roots of countless common descriptors of women, like diva, crazy, dumb blonde, and the B-word, and redefine and reclaim each identity along the way. The complete season of Archetypes is out now on Amazon Music or wherever you get your podcasts.